This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by San Francisco Deputy Public Defender and Democratic Candidate for District Attorney, Chesa Bowden. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Of course. So you have a very intimate understanding of the criminal justice system. You probably wouldn't be running for this position if what you've seen was all A-OK. What inspired you to jump into this race in particular? Well, that's right, uh, Jordan. I grew up visiting my parents in prison, and prison visits teach very hard lessons. I learned from an early age that our criminal justice system is profoundly broken, that it doesn't work for victims, that it doesn't work for families, that it doesn't work for our communities. And one of the ways we know how broken it is, is the recidivism rates, meaning the rate at which people who are released from prison or jail are reconvicted and put back into the system. It's a, a shockingly high rate, well above two-thirds in California state prison. So it's not actually making us safer. It's leading people to continue to engage in a, in a life of crime. And it's, it's that experience and it's my work as a public defender over these past uh, several years in San Francisco that uh, led me to believe there's a much better way, uh, a way for us to make San Francisco a safer city with more dignity for the people moving through the criminal justice system and with more um, voice for the victims who have been harmed by crime. I, I think this is a really unique moment in American history when the entire country is really concerned with and focused on criminal justice reform and where we have a wave of progressive prosecutors across the country getting elected with a mandate to think about public safety in ways that are smarter and more creative than simply doubling down on failed, tough-on-crime policies. And in San Francisco, it's a unique moment as well. It's the first time in over 100 years that there's no incumbent prosecutor running for district attorney. And the other uh, candidates in the race seem to be running on platforms that would essentially double down on the policies we know don't work and don't keep us safe. I've got a vision for how we can dramatically improve public safety in a way that saves tax dollars, treats people with dignity, and breaks the cycle of recidivism at its roots. And that's that's why I'm running. Could you dig into what exactly this better system looks like? What does it truly mean to center victims and end recidivism? What practices are you going to implement to do so? Right now, what we see every day is that um, most victims of most crimes don't have a voice in the process their needs are not met, and their um, injuries often go unrepaired. An alternative approach would be to focus the resources that we spend on the criminal justice system on making victims whole, and to ensure that victims have a voice through restorative justice programs. Um, Right now, San Francisco has no meaningful restorative justice program for its criminal court, and that means that victims are deprived of the opportunity to confront uh, the people who harmed them and to 
explain the damage that was done. And I think that's an important program for us to implement, not only to empower victims and to give them a voice and to help them move past their injuries, but also because it's been proven to have a tremendously positive impact on changing the behavior of people who commit crime and reducing the recidivism rate. And could you perhaps give us an example of what a restorative justice process looks like? Sure. So it can take different forms, but the basic idea is that every victim of every crime should have the right to request to sit down uh, face-to-face with the person who harmed them, with a a moderator or mediator who's trained um, in facilitating these conversations, and to explain to that uh, person what they did and how it harmed uh, the victim of the crime, and to engage in a dialogue. And sometimes this is a process, you know, in, in, in the more serious cases that requires uh, multiple conversations, um, multiple meetings or sessions. And other times it can be a short, um, you know, one session process. But I'll give you a, a, a sort of an example from one of my cases where I tried to facilitate this process. I had a case where someone was accused of an auto burglary. And I reached out to the victim whose car had been broken into, and um, the victim hadn't heard from the prosecutor. They hadn't heard from anybody in the DA's office. I was the first person to reach out to them, and I said, "Look, how much how much did it cost you to get your window fixed? And and you know what can my client do to make it right?" And you know they explained to me what the costs were and said that five hundred dollars would cover it, and communicated that to my client. And my client spent four months saving money to pay for the damage that he'd done. Now. That process meant more, what what that victim expressed to me was that it was more important to them that my client appreciate the harm he'd done, that he make efforts to right the wrong, rather than that he get sent to state prison for some lengthy period of time. And the prosecutor in that case was asking for two years state prison. All the victim wanted was the window to be fixed. I think we need to honor the requests of victims and we need to focus on making them whole, whether it's a broken window or a broken bone. And right now, the system is too focused on conviction rates and lengthy sentences. And so we're willing to spend 10% of our state budget just on the prison system, not to mention the cost of local jails and courts. And too often, victims don't have their windows repaired or the harms repaired. How much power does the DA actually have in this process? Well, the district attorney is the most important and powerful actor in the criminal justice system, because the district attorney decides who to charge with what charges and what approach to take to resolving those cases. So the district attorney can prioritize enforcement of certain laws and can prioritize resolution of cases in in certain ways. So for example, right now in San Francisco, we spend um, far too much of our you know, criminal justice resources, limited resources on misdemeanor cases. Two thirds of the jury trials in San Francisco are misdemeanor cases. You know, it's my view that the cases that warrant the most attention and that we should be focusing our resources on are the serious violent felonies. Um, So, you know, those are decisions that are made by the prosecutors. And by the same token, if if you're going to resolve a case um, without a trial, it's up to the prosecutors to make an offer about what the case is worth, what a fair outcome is. And unfortunately, in most district attorney offices, those offers, plea deals, are based on conviction rates and length of sentence. They're seeking to send people to prison for as long as they can in most cases. I would much rather the focus be on making the victim whole, 
and ensuring that the person doesn't come back into the system whenever their time is served. So I think we need to focus on creative solutions that break the cycle of recidivism and free up resources to make victims whole. And something you're touching on here, I think, is the issue of of punishing people for violent offenses, but not actually stopping further violent offenses from happening. How exactly do we go about responding to violence in a way that hits the root causes of why these violent actions occur in the first place? That's a great question. And, you know, these are not easy problems to solve, but I think we need to understand what motivates the behavior if we hope to change it. In San Francisco, 85% of bookings into county jail are a person suffering from severe mental illness, drug addiction, or both. That's a staggeringly high percentage of people. Now, if we don't understand that and we treat people who are severely mentally ill or who are severely drug addicted um, the way that we would treat people who don't suffer from those afflictions and we expect them to respond to the same incentives, then we're never going to change the behavior and we're always going to have more victims of crime. And it's going to be a revolving door, which is exactly what we see today. We need to understand the treatment and hold people accountable in a way that changes the behavior. So if you're mentally ill, and you do something violent, it doesn't mean you don't get prosecuted, but it means the prosecution should focus on not just punishment, but also treatment and requiring that you engage with services so that when you get released, you're in a better place than you were before, and you don't do the same thing again. Simply sending people who are severely mentally ill to prison for two years or four years is not going to change their behavior. And what we've seen is it makes it more likely that people will commit crimes. If we want to prevent there from being another victim in the future, we need to attack the problem at its roots. Punishment and accountability, but smart, tailored, individualized. And when it does come to punishment, do you believe that prisons are part of a just system? What are your thoughts on the proposal to abolish prisons? I have spent my whole life visiting prisons, and I know that many of the children I grew up with in the prison visiting room themselves ended up incarcerated. I know that the simple fact of having a parent in prison dramatically increases the chances that that child will end up incarcerated themselves at some point. That is also part of the cycle, and we need to break that cycle. But I am not a prison abolitionist. One of the things that I learned from my time visiting prisons is that there are some people who cannot and will not coexist safely and peacefully with the rest of us. I think prisons should be dramatically downsized. I don't think we need to use them as a solution to all of our social problems. I don't think that jails and prisons should be a dumping ground for the mentally ill. I think that we can do much better to, and treat people with more dignity and more effectively reduce crime by treating the problem at its roots. So for example, right now in San Francisco, we have more people on the streets addicted to drugs than we have high school students. That's a serious problem. And as long as that is the case, we are going to continue to have crime and we are going to inevitably create more victims of those crimes. Right now, basically what the system does is we wait for people who are drug addicted or mentally ill to do something violent and then we try to send them away for as long as possible. We would do far better with our resources and to protect both those vulnerable members of our community who are being targeted, and also those who are themselves suffering from these diseases and living on our streets, 
and committing crime if we provided treatment up front instead of waiting for a crime to be committed. We focused on the population that we know is at risk and that we know is living on the streets. And if we intervened before they committed a violent crime, we would do far better to enhance public safety and we would save tremendous resources and we would make the system more humane in the process. And for individuals who you do believe should be in prison, what what exactly should the prison experience be like for them? Prisons, for the people who are going to be coming back to our society, which is the majority, should be places that don't just punish but also rehabilitate. And we know that today's prisons are called correctional facilities, but they don't really correct or rehabilitate anyone. Instead, people in prisons are separated from their families and communities. They're not given the skills they need to succeed when they're released, and they're subjected to violence and often sexual violence while they're there. And the result, not surprisingly, is that people come back to their communities even more damaged, even more likely to engage in violent crime than when they went there in the first place. That needs to change. If we're going to punish people, which we must in some cases, if we're going to hold people accountable, which we must in every case where crime is committed, regardless of class, regardless of race, regardless of job title, when people violate the law, they should be held accountable. But we need to do it in a way that changes the behavior and protects people from being victimized in the future. Prisons fail to do that today, and we know they fail to do that today because two-thirds of people coming out are back in within just a few years. And when we hear about crime, we're almost always hearing about blue-collar crime. What is your approach to white-collar crime? In order for the criminal justice system to have integrity, in order for it to be legitimate for the government to deprive people of their liberty, take them from their families and communities, brand them as felons, with lifelong implications, it's absolutely essential that the law be enforced equally against everyone, regardless of race, regardless of income, regardless of who you work for. Otherwise, there's no equal justice. And all too often, what we see is that district attorneys and police departments enforce the laws zealously against poor communities of color and ignore violations of the law by corporate, by, by cor- corporate actors for the rich and powerful. If I'm district attorney, my promise that we will enforce the law equally. And that means that if employers steal from immigrant workers, if corporations pollute, if politicians are corrupt, the law will be enforced equally against them. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, 
I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Who do you believe will be the biggest impediments to the reforms you're proposing? Well, I hope that we can build a broad consensus to work on these issues. I think we all have a common interest in making the system safer, making our community safer, restoring the integrity of the criminal justice system, and rebuilding the faith and trust between law enforcement and the communities that we're supposed to serve and protect. But, you know, I'm concerned that some powerful interests, including perhaps um, the police department, um, will um, prefer to move forward with the kind of impunity that certain members of the department have enjoyed in the past. And we know that there are instances where police officers violate the law, whether it's through racial profiling or excessive use of force. And all too often, that sort of behavior goes unpunished. Just today, in San Francisco courts, the district attorney's office dismissed charges against the sheriff's deputies who had been organizing fight clubs and forcing inmates in the jail to fight each other so that the sheriff's deputies who were guarding them could place bets on who would win the fights. So that's illegal and immoral, and yet there's no accountability. Charges were just dismissed today. That has to change. And I think that there will be some people who are resistant to that change. But in the long run, if we can root out that kind of abuse of power and that kind of criminal conduct on the part of those who are sworn to serve and protect us, we're going to make tremendous strides towards restoring the trust that our vulnerable communities need to have in law enforcement if they're going to cooperate and help us solve crimes and make our streets safer. Uh, I was investigation in a case some time ago, and I came across an incident where there was a shootout in a residential neighborhood. Two groups of young men, armed with semi-automatic weapons, shot at each other across an open field in a purely residential neighborhood in the middle of the day with children playing in between them. Now, luckily, nobody was hurt, but bullets went through bedroom windows, went through the cars, and only one person in the entire neighborhood bothered to call the police. There is so little trust between our vulnerable communities where these kinds of crimes occur and the police that are supposed to serve and protect them, that it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for the police to solve crimes. That puts all of us at risk. So it's essential and it will be a priority of my administration to enforce the law equally and to ensure that the officers who racially profile, who need excessive force, or who lie on the witness stand in ways that undermine the integrity of the entire department are no longer in a position to do that so that we can rebuild that trust, so that we can enforce the law equally, so that we can solve crime and keep our streets safe. Earlier you mentioned legislation. Do you view local and state government as allies to your reforms? I think that uh, particularly in this era where we have a federal executive branch that is totally run amok, um, and is violating the law and making a mockery of our system of, um, of values, I think that state and local governments have a critical role to play in not just policy innovation, but also in 
enforcement of the law and upholding of constitutional principles. And looking at specific communities that are disproportionately targeted by an unfair criminal justice system, what will you do to support the immigrant community? Especially in a place like San Francisco, uh, you know, our immigrant community is a really significant part of our identity um, and it's a significant part of our culture and our history. And I think it's essential that law enforcement work with, not against, the immigrant community. San Francisco is already a sanctuary city. I support that policy. I helped develop, uh, in partnership with the sheriff, the original policy of not cooperating with ICE uh, back in 2012 and 2013. And I think that there are a number of things we can do. First of all, law enforcement can help victims of crime cooperate with law enforcement, obtain legal status through a process known as a visa. I think that's a tool and a power that we should expand and that we should use um, wherever possible and appropriate to help people who are victims of crime who come forward and cooperate with law enforcement to obtain legal status. Um, I think if we do that, we will encourage people to work with law enforcement and that will make all of us safer. Now, on the other side, I think we need to recognize that even people who commit crimes who are immigrants, are also members of our community, and that the current system unfairly discriminates against those immigrant communities by having very serious collateral consequences for immigrants that U.S. citizens do not face. And I think we should be mindful of that. State law requires that district attorneys consider immigration status as a factor in any plea negotiation, and as district attorney, it would be my priority to make sure that there are no uh, disproportionate or disparate impacts of criminal conduct on people because of their immigration status. They will be held accountable, they will be punished as appropriate, but we would consider ways to make sure that their punishment and the way we hold them accountable is not disproportionately punitive because of their immigration status. State law requires it, I commit to doing it. And of course, in this position, your main focus is not going to be foreign policy but you have been very vocal about American imperialism, colonization in the past. How can you bring that perspective and that knowledge to this office? You know, I was uh, mostly active on that issue as a senior in college when I was organizing against the war in Iraq. And, of course, uh, as we were saying in, in the opposition to the war then, you know, there were no weapons of mass destruction, and that was a pretext for invading Iraq, um, and it's a war that has cost uh, countless lives and, and, and far too many billions of dollars that could have been better spent. Um, as you say, that's not my focus uh, today. I work on the criminal justice system. It's a very explicitly local issue rather than a global one, but I think um, it's a, it, the, the work I've done around you know, other areas of activism has certainly informed my belief that transparency is critical that we need to have democratic process at every stage of government, that we need to have communities who are invested and committed to participating in oversight of their elected official, and that we need to publish the statistics that underlie the decisions we make in a way that's transparent, in real time, and that allows people who care about what's happening to weigh in and see exactly what we're doing day to day, so that if we're making bad decisions, we get that critical feedback, and we can correct our course. And of course, as you mentioned, the criminal justice system disproportionately targets people of color. How are you going about supporting racial justice, and how will you keep in contact 
and engage with racial justice activists and organizations. In San Francisco today, the population is um, under 5% African American, and yet more than 50% of the people passing through our jail and criminal courts are African American. There are vast and gross racial disparities, and one cause of that is the over-policing of poor neighborhoods. I think we need to make sure that our law enforcement resources are being distributed equally, that we're enforcing the law equally across the city and across race and class groups. I think we need to have mandatory racial bias training for everybody who works in law enforcement. And I think we need to have um, far greater transparency into the charging decisions that are made. Uh, we know that there is a significant amount of racial bias at the stage where people are booked into jail. And that those booking decisions end up having serious consequences for the ultimate outcome of cases. Uh, so that's an area where we need to have more transparency, more accountability, and we need to be looking at every single charging decision, every single plea offer we make with an eye towards ensuring that we are not discriminating against people based on the color of their skin, uh, the, the, the social class they come from, or their immigration status. And recently we've seen transgender activists bring light to how transgender people are mistreated by the criminal justice system. Oftentimes, trans people are placed in are placed in facilities that match the gender designation on their birth certificate, which is not the gender that they actually are. How will you go about supporting the transgender community? Uh, you know, I think it's a really important point you raise, and I think we need to be mindful of the risk of violence, especially to people who are transgender while they're incarcerated. And I think we need to be sure that we are minimizing harm, not increasing it. And all too often, we take people who are accused of nonviolent crimes and we put them into jails where they're victims of violent crimes. We need to stop that from happening. We need to work with, not against the transgender community to help ensure that uh, members of that community, as of all of our communities, who are at risk of uh, being involved in criminal activity uh, are given the resources, the structures, the supervision, and the support they need to avoid coming to jail in the first place. And if they are arrested, we need to work on finding ways to get them out of jail and into appropriate levels of supervision where they are safe and protected and where their individual dignity and integrity and self-determination is respected as quickly as possible. Do you support decriminalizing sex work? I do. I don't think that um, the protect people by criminalizing sex work. I think we need to be mindful of the distinction, however, between people who freely and voluntarily choose to engage in sex work on the one hand, and people on the other hand who are trafficked or um, being coerced into sex work. And of course, you support uh, the decriminalization of marijuana. What is your perspective on decriminalizing drug use and possession? We need to recognize that drugs are a medical problem as much as a criminal problem. And that means that while people who sell drugs are targeted by the police for prosecution, we need to ensure that we are providing appropriate treatment to those people that use, and we need to ensure that we have safe injection sites so that we're not facilitating the spread of serious diseases like HIV AIDS. And all of that means that if you look at these problems simply through the lens of law enforcement, then you will inevitably fail to solve the problem. We need to understand the roots, which is addiction, which is mental health, which is a, a medical problem, and not a criminal problem. And if we treat people the way they do in Europe and many other countries 
um, who are addicted to drugs as people who suffer from a disease, who need structure and support, and sometimes need to be separated from environments where they can easily obtain drugs, looking far more to reduce drug use and the damage that it causes to our society than we will if we continue to send people to prison for a lengthy period of time for possession of, sale of very small quantities of drugs. And obviously, homelessness is also a huge issue in your city, in your state, across the country, and homelessness is deeply criminalized. What will your approach be to homelessness? In my view, being homeless is absolutely not a crime. Um, I know that in some places, uh, law enforcement targets homeless people for disproportionate enforcement of the law. Uh, that's unacceptable. It is, however, uh, necessary that we in San Francisco invest in providing the members of our community who are homeless with opportunities to get off the streets into safer environments um, and into environments where they themselves are less susceptible to be victimized and where they can uh, remain sober and get mental health treatment that many of them need. Um, it's not a crime. It's a, uh, it's a uh, serious social problem, and the jails and the criminal system are not an appropriate dumping ground for all social problems. And what do you say to fellow young people who are interested in running for district attorney? You know, I think you have to um, take a, a look at your community and take a look at the moment, um, the historic moment that you live in and evaluate whether it's an uh, effective way to implement the kinds of reforms that are desperately needed in our criminal justice system. It wasn't uh, 10 or 15 years ago in most places. And I think today, increasingly, it's becoming a critical front line uh, for engaging in the kind of structural reform that's necessary to reimagine and reinvent the role of the prosecutor and the role of the criminal justice system in keeping society safe and holding people accountable and investing our tax dollars in ways that are effective in that, um, as I said, make us safer while treating people with more dignity. And what can folks do to get involved in your campaign and learn more about you? Um, well, they can sign up to volunteer, and they can um, read some of the news stories about our campaign uh, at my website, www.chesabodin.com. And uh, we'd love to have volunteers from anywhere and everywhere. Of course, we're focused on San Francisco, but we've already had hundreds of volunteers sign up from across the country. And you know, we're very happy to uh, have this campaign and, and ultimately um, San Francisco's district attorney office after the election is over, uh, be a model for how to more smartly keep our community safe um, for the whole country. And I think San Francisco is well positioned to lead the nation on smart justice, on smart safety, and on a more humane approach to ending the uh, recidivism that is plaguing our communities. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today, and we hope to get you on after you win the election as well. And to our listeners, Make sure to follow the Millennial Politics Podcast on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.